Welcome back to the Roads to Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rhodes. I do realize that I come into each and every one of these episodes extremely hot with the tonality and excitement. This one is going to be no different as I'm not sure that I've had a more applicable episode than the one that you guys are getting ready to tune into today. I use that term applicable in the sense that I'm confident most of you, let's call it 80% of you that are tuning in, will find a handful of nuggets that you can take with you and implement into your own processes, your own hustles to immediately find another stream of income for yourself or to find that catalyst, that bit of that you need to gain momentum. This is a very good one. I was recently on a run listening to another podcast that I had queued up and cross paths with the story of a guy named Matthew Bocknack. Matt checks all of the boxes, sort of normal life in quotations, from the outside looking in, in that he has a nine to five job. He has kids and a wife and a house and checks all those normal boxes. But in his spare time, Matt has built an incredible side hustle that is built around the skill of repairing motorcycles. And again, this is in his spare time, right? Away from his nine to five before his kids wake up and after they go to bed in very little time, you'll hear a very good overview of Matt's journey straight from the source at the top of our interview. I don't want to blow that, but the short of this is he has found ways through growth and additional streams of income to build out his side hustle to the point that we are all grinding for and dreaming about surpassing that nine to five income. And he did this back in 2015, 2016. My goal with inviting Matt on the podcast and interviewing him is obviously to spark a bit of inspiration within myself, within you all, covering a broad set of topics, starting with How can you start a service-focused business for those of us that have skill sets that we can turn into woodworking or teaching or where do I start? For those project-focused businesses, motorcycle repair, metalwork, woodwork, things where it's one-on-one or one-to-few, how can you start to scale that to a broader audience and avoid that bottleneck or that choke point of you can't handle any more business? He does that through YouTube and building his own courses and Patreon, and he's actually built his own products. The man has lots of limbs coming off of this one skill set. He he started his business in 2014. Matt saw just just about $1,000 in side hustle revenue. Through organic growth, content creation strategies, and the hard work that Matt will talk about here over the next hour... He's scaled that business to more than $7,000 a month. Most of that is totally passive. I will be back after the episode with a quick wrap up of the things that we've discussed. But with that, let's get to it. It's the road of the wealth. Yeah. I do it for health. Yeah. My kids and my spouse. Yeah. Here we are. Matt, man, the last two, three-ish weeks, brother, I've been busting at the seams with excitement for this podcast. I've studied lots around your journey, what you've done, and sort of how you've built this. And man, it's really, really inspiring. I know you're going to get 
several listeners' attentions today. And to just be totally transparent, I'm looking forward to maybe taking some of that inspiration with FaceTime today. Uh, Really, really appreciate you doing this, man. Yeah, absolutely, man. Happy to be here. For the folks that have never tuned in to uh, sort of you, your journey, the how-to motorcycle repair, sort of how this thing has just been built, I'd ask that we sort of start at the top and you take your time, walk us through your journey, your first bike, that pre-delivery inspector role, your business inception efforts back in 2011, uh, just kind of work us up to how you've gotten where you're at today. Yeah. So, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been into motorcycles. I mean, I think I started riding ATVs at like nine years old. I got my first dirt bike in seventh grade. I bought it for 180 bucks and two weeks later it broke. Had to pay a mechanic to fix it. It was like six, $800 repair or something like that. And I'm like, man, I got to start fixing this stuff myself. Right. And so that just became a hobby and, and, and something I really like doing is just fixing stuff in the garage. Right. And I've been around motorcycles my whole life pretty much. Ever since then, I've owned something, worked on something. When I was 18, I got a job at a dealer pre-inspecting bikes prior to handing them off to the customer. So I, I was around them then. Took a short break because I went to college, you know, had to study. So I didn't have any motorcycles then. But once I got out, I actually, that's how I kind of stumbled upon, well, let me start a business fixing motorcycles to earn a little extra income. I mean, your full-time job, your mechanical engineer, right, by day, and then you start a, a side hustle. Uh, the question is, is this a passion project? Uh, are you chasing financial independence? Was this by customer demand? People coming into you and saying, listen, man, you're one of the best bike fixers in the area. You've got to do that. Like, How did this come about? So actually, you know, I was at my day job or whatever, and I was scheduled to sit down with my boss for a performance review. And in my back pocket, I'm like, man, I'm going to ask for a raise. I need a raise. So I walk in there. Well, he had total different plans. He's like, Matt, you weren't performing this you know, too well this year. He's like, I'm giving you 1% or whatever. And I'm like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't tell him I want to raise <laughs> at this point. So anyway, and he was right. I w- my head wasn't in the game at this particular position. I was really struggling there. It was a demanding job and what's, whatever. So I'm like, all right, well, what do I got to do to get a a raise around here or whatever? He's like, Matt, you got to put in the time, you know, and I know what he was referring to. He's referring to 50, 60 hours a week, right? And I'm like, okay, what kind of raise we talking here? He's like, Matt, I can give you an extra quarter percent. And I'm like, dude, no thanks, right? So (laughs) that day, I swear I left early because you're giving yourself a raise if you leave early, right? And that day I just decided, you know what, I'm gonna maybe start repairing motorcycles for my home garage to earn the extra income. I think that's, you know, a better avenue. And since then I've gotten a better position, better pay. I'm more valued at the this company I work for now. But anyway, right that that was the, like the moment where I decided, you know what? I'm going to start something at home. You know, I was going to ask the question and I think I'm going to just sort of talk through it anyway and if you have color, feel free to add it. If not, we'll we'll blaze through it, but I was going to ask sort of where the inspiration comes from. I have several friends and colleagues and buddies. My boss builds older model cars for himself, right? I'm in the cybersecurity field. And so several of my sort of friends and colleagues build their own computers. I have several folks that are involved uh, on the side, away from their nine to five. They have a skill set they've built and they're pretty damn good at it and they're using it for themselves. But 
using that skill set to build courses or a Patreon or to put it on YouTube, that's like phase two, right? And at that point, you're really starting to try and build something and you're kind of putting yourself out there. Uh, Is there a trigger moment? It sounds like that was the instance is like, man, piss on this a quarter percent or half a percent. That's not shit. I've got to go push this. Was that your moment or was there friends pushing you? Was there, what did that look like, man? No. And I think another thing what happened around that time is we just had our third kid. We have four kids. So that was our third kid at that time. And my wife has been decreasing hours as well. She's a registered nurse. She works uh, labor and delivery, right? And now she doesn't work at all. But anyway, back then, we saw a decrease in incomes. I felt like I needed to fill that void with something and something I can do at home while the family's sleeping. So those two things is what made me start it. What do you feel? I mean, you get the ball rolling and how did you build your skill set? I'd imagine each bike manufacturer has different parts. They fit together differently. The flow is different. The way to take it apart is different. Each part on a bike is different depending on the manufacturer. I mean, there's so many moving pieces, hundreds of parts to start to grasp and it's your side hustle, right? So how did you go about pursuing that skill and and learning that? Was it courses, books? Is it self-taught? How'd you do that? Yeah, it's mostly self-taught. I mean, I worked at actually two dealers. I only mentioned one. I was mentored by a really good mechanic, but that was only for a year of time, right? But anyway, you know, if you learn the basics, you can apply that to pretty much anything. And I just really like working on engines and tuning them and and just fixing things. And it kind of comes natural to me, to be honest. I wasn't, I didn't go to school for it or anything. You know, I just went to mechanical engineering school and worked at a few dealers, but you know, I just kind of went for it. And now there are repairs that I will not do. Okay. I just pick and choose the service work that comes in that, that, that I can handle, you know? So mostly self-taught though, to summarize. In the very beginning, you come home, you're inspired. You say, man, I've got to start fixing bikes out of the garage. Can you talk through the original sort of back of napkin business plan. I mean, let's start with sort of demand generation. You come home, you have this idea. I want to start a side hustle. How, where did you go about finding your first one, two handful of clients? Yeah. So with motorcycle repair, all I needed is some customers, right? So all I did is posted an ad on Craigslist in the services section, and it was text only. And it literally went something like this. Hey, I repair motorcycles out of my home garage. I'm honest, reliable, reasonable rates. And here's my number. And that's it. And I put that up because I didn't have my website ready. I was working on a website, but it wasn't ready and and no one's going to come to your website when it's brand new. Right. So um, that Craigslist ad ran for like a month and that's all I needed. And then once you start getting people in, they have friends who ride motorcycles. It's word of mouth, honestly, was another good one. So it got up and running really quick. And I love the the word. I mean, you get super sticky, especially in a clicky, uh, it's just a lack of a better term, a clicky 
field like bikes or jujitsu, or I mentioned poker or building cars earlier, folks that build old school cars or that play uh, pool or poker tend to hang out with folks that are in a similar sort of field and, and have similar studies. I mean, it makes sense. You land your first handful of clients and you do a kick-ass job. Someone says, hey, where'd you get that done? And they are super pumped. Hey, I got it done for less than what we would typically pay. It was a badass job. It was a quick turnaround word of mouth starts spreading like wildfire and brings you more. Yeah. So I mean, like one job, for instance, one guy brought me his bike and then he's like, Hey, you know what? My neighbor has tons of motorcycles. He had like three or four and guess what? He was part of this motorcycle club or like, you know, there's just a reason for them to hang out and grill and drink beer. Right. And dude, I got so much work from them. I, I mean, they kept me busy for like a year. I had to decline everything else. It was just this little group of people that I was doing work for. It was crazy. Do you, I mean, you're doing it out of your garage was the idea. Hey, if you guys call me, I'll come pick your bike up, take it here, drop it back off where they take it, where they drop in their bike off with you. Like talk me through sort of that. How much were you charging? Just talk me through that the business model. Yeah. So, you know, the Craigslist ad started me up. Then I had the website and I also was on Google maps. So that's how the leads were coming in and word of mouth as well. So they would drop the bike off because I didn't have any towing services available, but I can talk about how I did get a third party to start towing for me. But anyway, yeah, so they would drop their bike off. You know, when they pull up, I'd open the garage, they'd drive right in, we'd talk for a little bit, see what they need, and then they would leave. And then, and then I began my work. And for those that didn't or needed a tow, there's a guy in town here. It's called Mike's Motorcycle Towing. That's all he does is he tows motorcycles. So we actually got in a good relationship where if someone needed a tow, I would just refer him to Mike. And I was at work. Mike would drop off a bike. My wife would be home. She'd open the garage. Mike would pull it in. They would wave. She would close the garage and bam, he was gone. It was like clockwork, man. And that went on for months. It was awesome. <laughs> man, and once you get a flow like that, I mean, that's you've got a full operation set up at that point, right? Not much infrastructure or overhead. Like they didn't cost you much to get something like that set up, a good flow. My freelancers, as they tune into this right now, they are going to be peeling their skin back, trying to figure out, I mean, out of the gate, one of the hardest decisions to make, I'm listening to my woman do it now, is do I bill hourly? Do I bill by the day? Do I bill by the project? Like It's so new and it's so early to you that you don't really know how much time and effort and energy and what is this going to take me? How were you doing that out of the gate? How'd you decide? Was it on a per, on a per project basis, per hour basis? How'd you approach that? So, I mean, in the beginning, I tried to do like 20 bucks an hour and then I quickly realized it was way too little and I crept up to 60 bucks an hour. Now, shops around here are charging 90 bucks an hour. So I figured just a little less since I'm you know, just at home or whatever. So that's what I tried to bill as. However, no one really, not many people asked my hourly rate. They just wanted the project labor cost, the whole thing, right? So I have a good idea of how long things will take and I simply just bill for the whole job or estimate for the whole job. Mm. And I, I mentioned freelancers. One of the biggest differences, when, a few weeks back, I had Laura Briggs come on the podcast and she talked to me about how a freelancer doesn't necessarily mean you're a copywriter, right? There are plumbers that are freelancers. They decide to open their own gig. They're, they become their own boss. They work their own hours. I think I would put you in that category. I think this is sort of quote unquote freelance work. You're, you've now become your own boss. You're working your own hours. You can work the projects and go and push back as you please. One of the biggest differences 
differences. And I've seen between you and the freelancers that I've interviewed in the past is those, the past interviews have been masters with their words. They're master copywriters. And so they're hired by entrepreneurs or businesses to write blog posts or emails or something of that nature. But a mistake as a copywriter, it's a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal. Right. You can screw up a few words. Your terminology can be jacked up. You may forget some punctuation or some grammar. And that's, it can be breezed over with the work that you're doing. If someone were to bring you a bike and you disassemble it, you take it apart and you forget to put something back into it, or you scratch the bike on its side or drop it or whatever the case is. Like, I feel like it's, there's much more crucial. It's much more impactful. It's pivotal. The question I wanted to ask you is to get something like this startup. And I'm thinking there are folks that do roofing. And I mentioned plumbers. There are other folks that are service oriented that if they were going to start a freelance hustle, did you have to pick up a specific type of insurance or an LLC or some sort of like protection for yourself as you operate on other people's sort of higher end goods? Well, yeah, absolutely. If a brake job goes wrong and, you know, the person crashes, they'll sue the pants off me, right? So yeah, so I have an LLC, okay? My cousin's husband is a lawyer. So he set me up with an LLC for whatever, three to 500 bucks or whatever it costs to do that. And then I also have general garage liability insurance, okay? And what that protects me is from theft, fire, and road tests, okay? Because they're not my motorcycles, so I need proof of insurance if I ever get pulled over, right? Sometimes I do performance work. I'm flying down the street and testing stuff and you know I don't want to get pulled over. So, but yeah, you definitely need that in certain types of businesses such as motorcycle repair, roofing like you mentioned, plumbers. Yeah, you need insurance, you need protection for sure. You remember and this is just scratching my own itch, but do you remember getting that off the ground? How much that cost overhead wise to get an LLC built to get you that insurance? Was it a pretty big upfront expense or was it relatively cheap? So the LLC, I think to get it set up initially three to 500 bucks, I want to say the general garage liability insurance in my case was I think 80 a year or 80 every six months or whatever. So that wasn't too bad. That's nothing. Yeah. Okay. For, and I'm kind of getting us back on track. You land your first few clients via Craigslist. You have a post out there. Word of mouth starts working. You mentioned a website's in progress. Can you talk a little bit about the website? What did you build it on? Did you build it yourself and how were people finding that website? Yeah. So I built it myself, which was probably a mistake because it took way too much time. And looking back now, it's so cheesy, right? <laughs> is it on WordPress? <laughs> yes. It's not even a logo. I think I found some, I did some Photoshop stuff. I got some diamond plate and then I did some font and that was my title or my logo is it was, it was free, right? But anyway, it's a basic site. It just tells me a little bit about me, my services, directions, how to contact me. And then I got a review section. The reviews are huge. So yeah, super simple site. And then I also am on Google Maps. And are you, I saw a blog portion on your website. Is that what's building and uh, helping your brand? I mean, are you building organic traffic and SEO or how are people finding that website and, and funneling to you? So on the service site, I actually have a blog and this was back in 2011. I'm like, you know what? I want to start teaching people how to repair their own motorcycles. So I think I posted three times and then I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why would I teach people how to fix motorcycles when I'm trying to gain their service work? Right. So then I branched off and I started another site, which is howtomotorcyclerepair.com. So, but to answer your question on how people are finding me, you know, people do land on the site and I think people are 
searching in Google Maps. If you type in motorcycle repair, I'm one of the top hits, you know, in a local business environment, right? Or in a local search. So that's been working well, you know? Can you talk about, because I, uh, when I was setting up Roads to Wealth, I mean, I'm filming this out of my living room. You're working out of your garage. I saw the opportunity to plug in Roads to Wealth and they had asked for your address for Google purposes. Have you plugged in your home address? Is that what you're using in Google? And that's what's sort of tracking you around your area? Or have you done like a PO box? How'd you get around that? So initially I put my address there and I put my cell phone number and that's a huge mistake. I would not recommend anyone doing that for a couple of reasons. Cause I had a guy just show up to my house. Okay. And this customer was, that's a whole nother story, <laughs> but anyway, it's just, just this one guy. Right. But anyway, then you'll have sites like, uh, like Yelp scrape your site. So how I got around all that is I just say, Hey, I'm in Mount Prospect, Illinois. Okay, I just put a general location. And for Google Maps, they allow you to drag the pin to the nearest intersection and not display your address. And then you have your service radius or your range where you show up for people. Nice. The Craigslist is first. You build your website, you're in Google Maps. So Craigslist is bringing you some traffic. Word of mouth is bringing you some traffic. You have your website, Google Maps is bringing you some traffic. When, how does YouTube or videos come into play? When does that idea start picking up and how? Actually, real quick, because I mean, I think I started servicing motorcycles in October of 2011. And then my howtomotorcyclerepair.com site was up February 2012. So just four or five months after, right? And the reason is now with the service business model, you are limited to the amount of time you have to work. Okay. I mean, I have to sleep at some point, right? So if you only have five hours a week, you're only going to be making five times 60 bucks an hour. That's your cap, right? So I'm like, well, how can I make this more passive? How can I take this more, you know, me out of the equation? So I'm like, you know what? I'll start a, a YouTube channel and a blog and doing videos and pictures and text posts and all that to help people fix their motorcycles. I've put three, four plus weeks of research into what you've built, how you've done things, your whole shebang. And if there was one thing that I could triple circle, it's this idea right here. In our prep call, you said something like, I'm going to be doing the work either way why not just video it and build a brand and content around it, right? And so the more I've thought about this, this feels applicable to damn near any field, right? I mentioned earlier, me doing jujitsu, if you're going to train on a daily basis, why not stay after class and film the move or the submission that you learned that day? If you're a baseball player and you play high school or college baseball, why not film your fielding and throwing mechanics and how you swing and how you hit off a tee and how you do soft toss and try to start to build a brand and courses and content around that. If you're a teacher, right? And you're teaching English or multiplication, you have the ability to set a phone off, a camcorder off to the side, film this, develop a lesson plan and continue to do your normal work, the work that you would already be doing, and on the side, as a sort of build once, sell twice model, start to expand your brand just by videoing yourself. And I mean, you're multiplying your efforts just with a video camera. Yeah, absolutely. So to summarize that business model, so what I started doing is I would get service work through my service site. I would do the repair 
and I would record it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just in shock, man. No, I mean, I just, no, you're I just shaking love your the... head. You're like, don't say that yet. <laughs> no, no, no. no. I just, I'm shaking okay. my head because I just, I love the business okay, model. Okay. So man. let me start over. All right. So the business model is this, a service customer comes in with their bike and what I do is I need to do the repair, right? So while I'm doing the repair, I record it. And then I take that recording and I edit it and I upload it to YouTube for either a free video or if it's like a really advanced video, I will sell it. People will need to pay for it. And I just kept doing that. And there's so many positives to this. You're getting free content because for me to get a motorcycle, shoot that video, pay for the parts, I would go broke. There's no way you'd get your return on investment back, at least in the beginning. So it was just super nice. It just kept coming in. And then you get problems that are very common, okay? And then it solves other people's problems out on YouTube and stuff because they can easily find it because they're searching for that same exact thing. And actually, you're kind of going where I wanted to go with this, where YouTube is a huge pool, right? And I feel like there are more creators, content creators headed that direction each and every day. I feel like it's gaining momentum. It's like the second biggest search engine, right? It is massive. And I think the amount of creators that are headed there are multiplying daily. What do you think makes your channel so popular? Are you doing anything special in the back end with targeting specific people in your region? Are you paying YouTube to do some sort of like targeted ad work? Have you done the back end YouTube SEO with tags and things like that. What are you doing to, I mean, you have what is it, 85,000 subscribers in YouTube. So what have you done to build that? What do you think makes you so popular? To be honest, I don't do any of that. I mean, I just put a descriptive title of exactly what I'm doing. Like for example, how to adjust a carburetor. Okay. And I just do a really thorough detailed video on it and it just gains traction, I guess. And and yes, I do the tags at the bottom and whatnot, but I don't know. Some of these videos just have worked really well for me, you know? And I've posted, let's call it, I mean, I don't know, 20, 25 videos to YouTube for a variety of reasons, travel, roads to wealth, alert logic, all sorts of things. And that process to get a video posted, I mean, if you're not doing a lot of the back end stuff, it's really easy, man. It takes like five, six minutes, right? You're, I think I'm just confirming, I mean, you're putting that in there. You're writing a very descriptive, fixing this type of bike this year, enter, and then tagging it. You're just walking through the simple steps that YouTube gives you. And this thing's growing organically. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Like for example, this motorcycle behind me here, I have an engine rebuild. So I think I posted a video, how to engine rebuild on this model, this year range. And that's it. I mean, it doesn't get any simpler than that. 85,000 subscribers. Have you found a way to monetize that following at all through YouTube via ads, affiliate links, anything cool like that? Yeah, all the above. But let me talk about the beginning. When I started my YouTube channel in 2012, I immediately, like a couple months later, you set up an AdSense account so you can monetize. Well, it got canceled or demonetized or closed down or whatever you want to call it. And I'm like, what? So I tried to appeal it several times and nothing happened. So from 2012, I think to 2016, I earned nothing from YouTube. Okay. And then I think when I hit like around 20,000 subscribers, I had a partner manager reach out to me to discuss channel growth and whatnot. I guess that's like, that's what they do. When you hit a certain number, someone calls you, which was pretty cool. And she's like, Hey, I noticed you're not monetizing your channel. What's going on? I'm like, well, funny you mentioned that. I don't know what happened. You know, I can't talk to any of you over there. And she's like, let me look into it. The next day it was flipped on. So I started monetizing instantly, you know, 
And at that point, I think the numbers was only like 300 a month. Okay. So it's pretty low. Now it's much higher. I mean, today or averaging in 2020, I think I'm up to like 1300 a month in uh, YouTube ad revenue. I mean, the... Uh, how frustrating, man. <laughs> you went four plus years where, I mean, 300 bucks is not, it's not going to change your life, but that's, you know, part of a grocery bill or your car. But I mean, it's definitely going to be something. And that could have been months and years worth of payment. No retroactive assistance or help. You had to go get 20,000 20, subscribers before you're able to get contact with them. Yeah. And not only that, um, I wanted to quit. You know, like, well, I'm like, this isn't working. Why, why am I wasting my time? You know, I can't tell you how many times I wanted to quit, but it also did something else. It made me search for alternative monetization ways or methods. And that's, I think in 2014, I put out my first premium video that I asked money for. And so that started gaining traction. So I really focused on that starting in 2014. And it was a result of, you know, having a closed YouTube account. If it was on, would I have done that? I don't know, you know? Yeah. The problem that you're bringing up right now, I've heard, let's call it a dozen times now on Roads to Wealth of that relationship with YouTube, while at times can be lucrative, is really interesting and it can get fishy. Almost as if you're reading from my notes, the question I wanted to ask you next is when you, when you grow to a certain point, I've found that other entrepreneurs, other side hustlers try to find ways to get off of YouTube and start to own that relationship with the customer themselves. I had Erica Williams who she owns something like 10, 12 big rig trucks in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I listened to that one. Oh man, yeah. So YouTube sensation. She's a character, right? And she talked about the relationship with YouTube and how at time her episodes would be duds and she would publish them knowing these are about to crush and they wouldn't get any views. They wouldn't get any. And she's had, I mean, literally had sort of knockdown, draw out arguments and fights with YouTube. She said on the podcast, and I wrote it down, if you're gauging with them on YouTube, that's YouTube's customer, right? And people like her or Rob Cubbin who build KDP journals, their main focus is to use YouTube as almost a lead generation source. And we're trying our hardest to get them off of that platform and into our email list or onto my website to buy my product, right? I don't want you on YouTube engaging with my stuff. Have you taken that same approach? Have you found any issues with that? How are you starting to own that relationship? Yeah. So that that's a good question because I do and YouTube allows this, I link out to my videos that I sell and products and all that and my website. And yeah, YouTube's goal is to keep people on YouTube, right? To give more ad impressions, right? But at the end of the day, I'm worried about my revenue, not YouTube's revenue, you know? So I kind of have to do what I have to do and I got to promote my things as well. But I kind of sprinkle in free videos and then I promote. And I don't think you can promote hundred percent because they're going to ding you in the algorithm, I'm sure. So, I mean, you know, but I don't study all that too much because that is like a rabbit hole that you'll never get out of. I mean, I don't even want to go down there. You know, I don't try to figure it all out. On your videos, I mean, are you just closing with, hey guys, if you liked what you saw, head over to this website. Are you just tagging it? Like, how are you sort of working around the system to push them back to your platform? What does that look like? So yeah, let's talk about a sample video that I put up and I tried to convert into sales. So I'll put up like 10, 20, 30 minute video of what I'm trying to sell. 
And in the very beginning, I am very upfront and say, hey, this video on here on YouTube is a sample. The full video can be purchased up here because people get all bent out of shape if you say it, you know, you you think you're giving them something, but at the end, oh, you got to buy this. So no, right off the bat, I tell them, hey, you know, you got to pay for the full video. And then I kind of go into saying, hey, the full video is X amount of hours long. It includes this and this and this, and it's over here in this link up in the upper right. Then I kind of give a sample of the video of like real time taking something apart, but I don't get into the meat and potatoes of it. I just kind of do like cover, you know, simple things. I don't want to do anything advanced in that. Okay. And then after a couple minutes of that, I do some time lapse with music and that's it. And then I end it. That's a sample video. I mean, it's a mini commercial. You're showing them everything that they need to see. You're not necessarily walking them through all of the details and here's this part and you're putting music over it at times. And it's kind of, it's just a taste and you kind of show them, look guys, this is exactly what you're looking for. But to get all the nitty gritty, you're going to have to go over my website. On your website, are you selling those courses? I mean, are you hosting those courses yourself or have you found a third party to host those courses, sell those courses through? Yeah. So I sell all my products, my digital products through Gumroad. So they're a third party. They do all the hosting. They take all the payments and they just pay outs to me once a week or whatever. It's been great. And it's completely hands-off. I mean, it's fully automated. The person gets a link and the video streams for them and, and that's it. I mean, it's super simple. I use this shit out of Gumroad. Some point here in the future, if they're not a podcast or if they're not a podcast sponsor, I'm going to stop using them. But <laughs> Dude, I use the shit out of them, man. I want to talk a little bit about Gumroad. But first, can you talk about what you're using to sort of build your videos? I, just the sort of products, software for editing to go from build to post. Can you talk about some of the major components within there? Yeah. So my camera is a DSLR, a Nikon DSLR 3200. It was like four to 500 bucks. I'm using a Tascam DR04 audio recorder. So I do the audio separate, video separate, and then I merge them in post. I'm using Adobe Premiere Pro to edit. I built a video editing PC with a little bit with some nice horsepower, you know, so it can uh, render really quickly and whatnot. So that's that. I do have a lot of light in the garage, as you can see in the background. I have 50 four foot tubes up there. It's like a hundred thousand lumens. Okay. You need a, <laughs> you need a lot of light for video, right? There's definitely going to be clips of this, but for those that don't see the clips, it looks like you're under a tanning bed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, when this garage is lit up at night, you should see the light that comes out of the windows. It's like a UFO's freaking landing in my backyard. It's crazy. And then I also have some soft boxes and a camera light if I need some more light. But with the amount of light I have now in the ceiling, it's pretty good. It's really good, actually. So what I'm loving that I hear, and I asked you this offline, like, are you using an EVA or using a third party? And I mean, everything that I've heard so far from business inception to you built your own computer to, I mean, the video post-production, pre sort of recording, getting your camera set up. This is all in-house operation. The only thing I've heard where it's not you was your wife helped open the garage door at one point. This is all <laughs> you, man. Yeah. So I think the only thing I outsource so far is my logo design for how-to motorcycle repair. And I currently, and this was through Upwork, and I just hired someone to help me out with my WooCommerce portion of the website, which I'm adding because I'm, I'm actually getting into selling a physical product. I want to do it through there. And so that's about it. 
this is more than the gear, huh? You sell like the hoodie and hats and things like that. You have another physical product on, on its way? Well, yes, but the hoodies and stuff I do through Teespring. So it's on demand, but you know, I, I got this logo. I'm like, oh man, people are going to buy this stuff, it's, right? It's pretty dope, man. <laughs> well, no one bought, no one bought it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think I sold $150 worth of merchandise profit in the past two years. So I'm going to buy thought, one after this. The hoodie's right. dope. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you just never know, right? And that's why you got to try things. You got to see what sticks to the wall, right? Yeah, I agree. The, the hoodies and stuff wasn't one of them. Okay. And some people do really well with merchandise and hoodies and stuff like that. But my audience apparently does not. So what was the, the company that you use there? Who did you say? It's Teespring. Teespring. I've heard of them. Yeah. You mentioned Gumroad earlier. How have you found the relationship, the integrations, getting the videos, your content, once you've got post-production onto Gumroad, is that a pretty easy process for folks that haven't been on the other side of that UI? It's very simple. I mean, you just upload your files, organize them how you want and so forth. It's, it's pretty simple. How many courses and maybe average cost or range of cost? What does that look like for you? Yeah. So uh, today I'm sitting at around 30 digital products and they range from 14 to 199. Most of them are 30, 35, some are 50. And then I have a couple that are 69, 99, 149, 199. The content that you're posting out there, and this is just me sort of confirming and rechecking the box, all of that content is on or around bikes that you've already been operating on. They're already in your inventory. You were going to work on them anyway. Let's build a course around this, most of those products. Let's build a course around this and publish it, just to confirm. Yeah. Actually, I think two of them were my personal projects, um, and but I would say 80% of them were customer motorcycles. Have you ever found anything weird about cars, older cars, motorcycles are a little weird in that people care about them a lot, right? That's my baby. I was that way when I got my truck originally, right? When I first graduated, there's this thing of like, hey guys, be really careful with that. Don't sit on the hood. Don't do shit with it, right? Like I'm super, super cautious with it. Have you ever had an issue with someone gives you your bike or gives you their bike, you're working on it, you film, you build a course and they get upset with, man, you shouldn't be filming yourself working on this and publishing it and making more money off of you know your work around my bike. I know it's a weird one, but I, I figure at some point that's got to come up just because it's so, that's my baby, right? And I don't want my bike out there. I don't want you making money on my bike. Has that ever come up for you? So, you know, I thought the same thing. Sometimes I don't tell them that, you know, a lot of customers, I know they probably don't care. You know, it's not like I have their license plate in there or, I mean, cause there's a million of them on the street, right? How would you know it's someone else's, but I have shared the video with customers and they're like, Whoa, that's awesome. And then they go share that video. Hey, my bike's in that video on YouTube. So I've actually had a positive response from all that. So. Listen to that. I was going to say, I could see the other side of it too, right? Because that's a really cool, I mean, other mechanics, other hands-on services aren't going to give you that. Like, hey, not only did I fix your bike, but here's a three-hour video that I built around how I fixed it. And you can have this, share it, do whatever you want with it, right? But if you're holding that bike near and dear and it's so special to you, that video is going to be pretty damn special to you as well, right? It's something you're going to hold on to and it's going to be precious. You'll probably want to share it with your friends and family. And like you said, it's only, it's your walking billboard at that point for your business. Right. I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, we've covered lots of within your moving pieces. I've studied the hell out of your journey. And my next question is, I'm, I know I'm sort of getting close on time. I want to give just a little bit of direction as to 
kind of expecting the answer, but one of the biggest choke points to your business as we sort of crawl through it that we haven't discussed, but that where we're at sort of in the journey that we're talking through that you would be experiencing is you're only able to build content around the type of bike that's brought to you, right? And so as something comes inbound, a specific product or a specific type of bike, hey, I'm going to record myself. I'm going to film that and publish it, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a common bike or that it's going to be hot, but you're limited to your inventory or what's being brought to you. Can you talk a little bit about how you overcame that challenge and how you do things today? Yeah. So I will say that not everything I get is recordable or worth recording. I mean, you know, you just kind of, actually, it's kind of nice not even working with the camera, like actually just wrenching without yeah. any, you know, distractions. So yeah, worrying yeah. about the angle and the lighting. Yeah. and the- So that happens. But then, you know, and also I get to work on stuff that isn't very common. And I know that if it's not very common, then it's not going to get a lot of views. It's not worth the effort of putting videos on, on it. Um, but like I think a year or two ago, I went out and bought my own motorcycle, a specific model that I knew it was very popular and that I can create three products around it. So yes, I bought the motorcycle. Yes, I dumped money into that investment. But now I have three products that sell very well month over month. And then I just sold the motorcycle. It was gone now. So that's a solution right there. Yeah. Uh, and kind of the answer I was expecting. And I wanted to get that to follow up with one more. At some point when you've been operating this long enough and you've been in business now, side hustle business now for several years, you're able to look back and see the result, what's being consumed, what's selling well, and start to apply this 80-20 principle to what's being consumed, right? To your content. And you're able to look back and see what are the 20% of my videos that are producing 80% of my revenue. What's the hottest, right? And from there, when you get the, when you, when you have that, when you have that detail, you can start to create more content really close to that, understanding that that's what your viewers are looking for, right? So if you have a specific type of bike or a certain size engine that works really well, then you know, oh shit, I need to go just one size up, but stay here, right? Or uh, they really like this model of bike. So let me work on different parts within this, but you're using the past, what you've seen in the past from revenue and from viewership and all that to help frame what you're building in the future. Have you, have you seen anything like that, done anything like that? Yeah. So like, for example, I noticed that anything carburetor related from cleaning them, fixing them, tuning them, um, gets a lot of views. So I can, you know, think of a million video ideas on carburetor topics, right? Um, another thing is I have a, a rebuild video, engine rebuild video, carburetor rebuild video on a Honda CB550. Okay, from the 70s. That's a really popular model. Well, guess what? Honda also makes a 750. And I know that given the sales, the sales we're tracking for the 550, that the 750 would do just as good or better. So that is the motorcycle that I went out and purchased because there weren't any customers at the time bringing me that. So I'm like, you know what? I'll just go buy one. I bought the motorcycle for 400 bucks. I put a couple grand into it, but now I have three products that net me 800 a month passive income based off of it. And I just sold it. That is spot on, man. I wasn't expecting that answer, but that is awesome. I know I'm pushing my time here, brother. I'm going to just do a broad stroke here of you have several other income streams that you've been able to build off of 
this one hustle. And I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It reminds me of uh, one of my first five episodes I recorded with this woman, uh, Dory Clark. She wrote the book, Entrepreneurial You. And uh, in the first 30 minutes of the, of the podcast, we got on this idea of entrepreneurs have this feeling, I need to start something, I need to start something, and they're chasing all these different cars, and it's best to focus on one thing and become an expert at one thing. And when you become the the market presence, the leader in that one thing, and you have that plate spinning, it's really, really easy to stack a second plate and a third plate on top of that and have more streams of income or more opportunities spinning. Once you get the first one going, the second and the third and the fourth are much, much easier. And I think what you've built, I mean, this is worth reflecting on and thinking about what you've built is a perfect example of that. And that you, you got extremely siloed, extremely niche in how you operate and you're fixing motorcycles out of your garage. And then you were able to branch off and start selling merchandise, quote unquote, selling merchandise. Yeah. Selling, selling courses. You've got a Patreon. You've got, I mean, there's like seven branches. As I looked through the description here of our prep call, there's like seven or eight branches of income on how you're able to operate and what you're pulling in. I want to quickly touch on, and I want to ask, you know, what else is out there? But one of the coolest things that I saw was the relationship or the partnerships that you've been able to create, both in way of free product and in way of quarterly videos for retainer. My question here is, can you just kind of talk about what those relationships look like, right? I mean, obviously you're specific in the bike industry. You have 85, almost a hundred thousand followers and subscribers. So products, uh, vendors start to find you and realize this guy's got a pretty good following. Were they reaching out to you? Did you reach out to them? And then how, how did that relationship look? Yeah. So one day, you know, I'm just going along my business and I get an email from a marketing firm and they said, hey, we have a client, they're in the insurance industry and they are looking for contract work for people like you to make videos to hand off to them so they can upload it to their blog. So they're looking for content creators. So I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. Let me get on the call with them. And uh, we spoke and they say, yeah, we need a two to three minute video related to motorcycle tips and tricks and repair and maintenance. What's your rate? And I told them, well, a thousand bucks. And they said, oh, you know, how about 800? I'm like, okay, fine. So yeah, so I, I did this video. And by the way, two to three minute video, that's, there's still like 20 hours of work that goes into something like this, okay? But anyway, I did the first one and they're like, hey, we want to do like three to four more a year. I'm like, sweet. However, I can't do it 800. It's got to be 1500. And I gave them a reason why and whatnot. And they said, yeah, okay, we're cool with that. So that went on for a few years and I was doing three, four, five videos for them a year. And then I think in 2019, I raised my rate again to 2000. And I did, I think, five videos for them that year. Nothing in 2020. I think their budget may have been impacted by COVID and all that. But I have replaced that income with other digital products. So I'm not, you know... But hey, if they ever call me, yeah, I'll do it, you know? (laughs) I want to ask what other streams, but first, you've also had affiliates or partners just send you some product and ask, hey, can you have this in the screen? Or uh, what, what does that side look like when they send you, when they're sending you product to use or leverage or put give screen time? Yeah. So I do have sponsored videos. So for example, I reached out to one company because I wanted a new toolbox. So I called them up and I said, hey, this is what I'm doing. Would you be willing to sponsor me so I can put your product in my video? I'll do some review videos and this and that. And they're like, yeah, sure. So one 
piece is this toolbox here that's sitting here and it's like an $1,800 toolbox. It's really nice. Um, so that was a freebie, but I had to do like three or four videos on it. Three minutes left, man. You've got Patreon. What else? Right. It's kind of how I want to end this. What, what else do you have in flight? Uh, let's see. I got a beer fund. So it's like a tip jar or donation thing. So it's just a fun way for people to contribute and support me with, you know, if I have ever helped them. So people can buy me a beer. It's pretty cool. Rather than buying uh, one of your courses or sponsoring you in Patreon saying, listen, man, you're just doing a kick-ass job. Here's three bucks or whatever that is. And it's, I think it says like, buy me a beer on your website. Right. Yeah, exactly. What is next for you, right? Each time that I've tuned into you and I've listened to a podcast, I've listened to four of them. I've, I've read blog posts. Each time you've doubled in revenue, you've doubled in viewership, like you picked up another three or four income streams and you've started to sell this and you're getting ideas. Where are you headed this year? 12, 18 months. What's next for you? Yeah. So I'm actually working on a physical product that I designed and here it is. It's a blast gun for product, a digital product that I sell. It's, it's basically a machine to restore parts. And this is something that people need and want. And there's nothing really, there's a couple options on the market, but this is something that I designed and I think it's going to sell well. And just so you know, like, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I can design things. Here's a 3D printed part. I bought a 3D printer, 3D printer for 300 bucks on Amazon to validate the design. And now metal parts are being cut. So that's a product that will sell well for me. After that, I do, I actually uh, am going to start uh, how to start an at-home business course. And you know, people always reach out to me and say, hey, you know what? I want to do motorcycle repair out of my garage. Or hey, I want to restore parts with the machine that you built and I built. And I know people want to earn money. And I so far, I have an email list for this course. And there's like 20 people signed up. That's enough to for a go. you know. So I'm working on that right now. After that, I don't know, maybe I'll do like a motorcycle repair course, like a very thorough course that costs 99, 199 or whatever. And it's just kind of, you know, it's just everything's in there, you know, man, whatever you do, I'm looking forward to consuming and I know you're going to crush it, man. I've awesome. Thank you. Yeah, man. I've really enjoyed this by the way. I know you've got to go, but that, that little start a, start a course at home or how to get this going at home is going to crush, man. Just because I, how your mind works, I'm really looking forward to consuming that. But for the folks that want more of you have more questions, want to just follow your journey, watch what you have going on. Where's the best place to find you? Uh, just go to my site, how to motorcyclerepair.com. And my YouTube channel is Matthew MC repair. Awesome, man. I'm a, uh, very, very thankful for your time, brother. I mentioned at the top here, I've been blown away by your journey, really inspired. I know that you've caught the attention, the ears of the listeners here. Just really, really thankful for you doing this today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, show notes. Uh, I'll have all of the links to the resources that we've discussed, a uh, full transcript of today's podcast on my website. Really, really appreciate you guys for tuning in this week. I'm grateful for the continued support. Make sure you give someone a hug, tell them you love them, and stay on your grind. Is this not one of the coolest stories and journeys, side hustles that you guys have heard of? <laughs> I think I'm so impressed and I'm so pumped due to the scale of this operation that has all been built around one skill. I mean, he has found a way to just 
squeeze that skill set of fixing motorcycles and just maximize that with the number of branches that he's grown off this one trunk. It's incredible. This is the exact topic that I want to explore here in my wrap up. Rather than covering a bunch of key takeaways, I liked the idea of boiling this down to find ways to scale. In the interview, I referenced Dory Clark, her analogy of get one plate spinning before you get the second one and they each get easier. As I sort of wrapped this up, I did the interview this morning and as I thought back on it, I reflect on Scott Lease and how he talked about he spent 10 plus years focusing on being the best VP of sales before he expanded out. But we spent the last 10, 15 minutes of that interview talking about the importance of scale. And Chris Miles, Laura Briggs, talked to us about how silly it is to rely on just one stream of income in today's age, where we're at, and the tools that we have at our fingertips. You don't have to learn something brand new to create a new stream of income. And that's my takeaway. A sport a trade like woodwork, a trade like metalwork or plumbing or teachers or artists, this list is endless. You find ways to scale at whatever you're already great at because there are people that envy you or look up to your skill sets and they would be willing to buy a $10, $15, $30 Gumroad course to hear from you and hear your thoughts and see your process. They'd be willing to watch YouTube courses and videos around your mindset and approach to problems. They'd be willing to follow your social channels uh, and talk to you on Clubhouse in front of a group of people and learn more about how you deal with challenges. As you start to stack those plates, you start to become an expert at your process and things start to get repetitive. That's where you look to build out a standard operating procedure. Look at that Nathan Hirsch podcast that I did and outsource it to a virtual assistant. I would think that is his next step with Matt and his process as outsourcing things like editing videos or ordering parts or whatever that is. There are things in his process, things in your process that you do every single cycle and there are things that you don't, you're not necessarily the best at or that you'd like. Now, I'm sure he doesn't like editing videos. It's time to build out a standard operating procedure. Write that out. Make sure it's prescriptive. Outsource that to a VA for a few bucks an hour. Uh, I hope that you guys got what you needed out of this episode. I learned just about all I could handle in an hour. I was blown away by this interview. I have lots of notes that I have boiled down into a very pretty PDF that I email out to a bunch of my followers now. If you guys want that, you can reach me through my website. While you're at the website, please leave a podcast review. That goal of 100 is still out there. I'm chasing that. And that is all I have for you folks this week. If you can't tell... I am swinging for the fences this year with guests, content creation. Your boy has got some really exciting things planned for the year. Until next week, stay on your grind. <laughs> so smooth. You know what I'm saying? Coupon made to be, by the way, just let y'all know what's going on. Uh.